I recall um, Alan Meyer on one occasion sharing a, a story about a, about a chap in a church that he attended as a young man. He was a violinist and, and he would often play in church and I think a particular favorite was Amazing Grace. He was a, a single elderly man, but he would, when he played the violin with Amazing Grace, he would be in tears. Tears would be streaming down his face as he'd play the violin. And, and that was kind of contagious. So many others in the audience were also just, just caught up in, in the emotion of that. And, and nobody actually quite asked him why it was that when he particularly pre- played Amazing Grace, why it was that he teared up. Anyway, he died actually rather suddenly and unexpectedly. And as friends and, and family, just a few close people, were cleaning out the, the house, they discovered to, to their alarm um, a room full of pornography. And it suddenly became very, very clear that this, this dear, dear old gentleman had had somewhat struggled in his, his life for a long, long time with a very, very heavy burden. And somehow when he played Amazing Grace, he seemed to perhaps tap into the grace of God which held out some hope for even a sinner such as him, even though he failed to experience the full freedom of it. And I wonder if today's passage, I wonder how different that story could have been if he, like you and I need to, understand the passage that is before us today. If you'd like to turn with me to Mark chapter 14, we're going to read about failure. The reality of failure in the Christian life, but the failure is not final. Mark chapter 14, we're going to read from verse 27 down through to verse 42. The context here is having just celebrated the Passover together and and we actually did that in a very special way a couple of weeks ago as a, as a church. I don't know if you recall the, the beautiful table that was, that was spread for us down here at the front. It was, it was a lovely table. I wish we could do that every week. But maybe just in your mind's eye, you can continue to, to picture that. That's the context. They have just enjoyed the Passover together. Verse 26 says, When they had sung a hymn, they went out now to the Mount of Olives. And so we come to verse 27. You will all fall away, Jesus told them. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. A side note there, that's a fulfillment of a prophecy in Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7. Verse 28. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee, Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. 
Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. They went to a place called Gethsemane. Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and he prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more, he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. It's a pretty confronting passage, isn't it? You hear, um, and I'm so thankful that the, the Word of God never, never shirks the, the awkward moments, the difficulties, the failures, the very, very human moments, which I, I imagine if this was just a compilation of human authors writing human thoughts, it would have been, it would have been polished up nicely, wouldn't it, to to be rid of, of such stories and failures as we read here. But here we read about the reality of failure. Back in verse 10, we read of Judas Iscariot. There we see a failure, but it was of the willful kind. That's, that's a failure just because of sheer willfulness. It was outside the will of God and, and not wanting to be aligned with it. But here, this is, this is a little bit more confronting because we see in verse 29 that Peter was very willing. This was not willful disobedience. This was willingness. I, I, I want to stand by you, Lord. I want to do the right thing. I want to please my God. I want to, I want to with great zeal, I want to be the one who perseveres. There's willingness here. And yet... In the midst of willingness, there's also the prediction of failure. And that's kind of confronting. That's kind of alarming for all of us, isn't it? You will all fall away, Jesus says in verse 27. I guess we're reminded, and John spoke of this, a young church which was very, very alarmed in his first letter, 1 John 1.8. They were alarmed at all that was 
unfolding before their very eyes and trying to come to grips with many things, including heresies that was creeping into the church. And in addressing some of that, John says in chapter 1, verse 8, here's, here's the truth. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. Goes on, even verse 10 uses stronger language. If we claim to be without sin, we're actually saying God is a liar. Truth is, we will fail in this life. Sin is a reality. And our failures and Honestly, the failures of others, they hurt us individually and they, and they hurt God's church. But the encouragement here is that failure is not final. Apart, Scripture is clear, apart from the sin of stubborn unbelief, that rejection of the Holy Spirit which says, I will not believe apart from that all sin can be forgiven you reject the Holy Spirit that is to say blaspheme totally reject him there's no hope outside of the conviction that the Holy Spirit brings into our lives that stubborn unbelief that can't be forgiven. But apart from that, there is no, Scripture is clear, there is no sin that cannot be forgiven. We've had thousands of years to practice. And humanity's good at it. We've not yet come up with a sin outside what Jesus, Jesus said that cannot be covered by the grace of Jesus Christ. That's the good news. And that's the good news this Father's Day as well. And I don't want to entirely limit it to fathers here because, let's face it, it it's, it's common to all parents, isn't it? A sense of failure at times. You can have your highs, but you can have your lows. And they can come in the same week, the same day, the same hour, sometimes the same minute. <laughs> I recall reading in the newspaper on one occasion that a, a U.S. naval ship was docked at Port Melbourne and was open for tours. And so I took Dan and Nat, who were, oh, you know, five and seven, probably around that age at the time. I took them out of school early for the day of their lives. I took a day off myself and and signed them out of school early and, and took them to Port Melbourne and we toured that ship and they had a ball. They just loved it. If there was a button that they could push, they pushed it. If there was a lever that they could pull, they pulled it. If there, there were stairs to climb, they climbed it. We had an absolute ball. But mum wasn't there to advise me, don't push it, Stuart. You can leave the return home a little bit too late. And I did. <laughs> and two things happened. I had some hangry young children in the car and I was caught in peak hour traffic. 
They were so hungry and a little angry. And I was stressed in the traffic. I have not been in traffic like that for years. And, and at some point or another, my reaction was not the perfect focus on the family scripted reaction. And there were tears in the back seat as I'm trying to juggle it all. And where is your mother when I need her? <laughs> and I was, as things quietened down, I was contemplating the reality. Ha, go figure. 30 minutes ago, I felt like the best father in the entire world. <laughs> and right now, I feel like the worst. <laughs> and we all have those moments. Parenting is a very, very humbling humbling task. As I often say, if it was about a license, we'd all surrender that license. I think we all have moments of feeling totally unworthy. And part of the reason is that we and all humanity experience this thing called a battle of the wills. And we see this as the, as the passage goes on. Back in verse 29, we see that Peter was, was very willing but now in this next passage, we, we look at this beautiful explanation of the submission of the will of the Son to the will of the Father. It is a battle of the wills, and it's a battle that we, we all face. Jesus talked about this battle in verse 38. He says, the spirit is willing, but the flesh, it's weak. He's not here talking about a good part of you and a bad part of you or some sort of strange dichotomy here. He's talking about the fact that there is a, a natural bent and apart from the Spirit of God controlling our spirit within us, that, that deep part of us, that, that centre of us, which is alive to God or dead to God, Apart from the Spirit of God controlling that, the flesh will and can get the better of us. There is a battle of wills here. Luther assessed this problem as talking about our free will as our wretched free will. A will unaligned with God's will simply doesn't work as it should. And so what do we do? When that happens, when our will is not aligned with, with God's will, Jesus models this for us beautifully. Here he is right on the cusp of the most difficult thing that he has ever done. He knows exactly what is, what is happening here. And in verse 32, he knows what he must do. It's a beautiful model. Whenever we are confronted with the possibility for failure, he says, sit here while I pray. I need to pray. I need to pray. I'm human. I have flesh. What I need to do right now is I need to pray. He knew exactly what it was that was going to come his way. In verse 34, he says, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. So he said to them, Stay here and keep watch. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. 
He was experiencing a world of grief. I don't know how you would describe your lowest moment ever. But do those words make sense to you? Overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, does does that make sense to you? Have you been there? Have you come to the end of yourself? Have you been to that place where, where you are just carrying a world of grief? Jesus has been there as well. So the writer to the Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 4:15 is right when he says he's able to empathize with you in your weakness. He's been through what you've been through. He's been tested and tempted in every single way just like all of humanity. He gets it. He gets it. And this is the moment that we know he gets it. He has faced that kind of darkness that feels like there is no light that could penetrate it. He's been there. He has. And yet without sin. Jesus was overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of grief. He was experiencing a world of grief. And he knew what he had to do in that moment. The reality of failure is always before us. And here Jesus models for us, well, what do you do when it threatens to be absolutely overwhelming? Sit here while I pray. I need to pray. He seeks communion with his heavenly Father. The intimacy that, that he needs and wants, he now makes time for. Here, in the garden, alone, before that wretched hour. Sit here while I pray. Communion with God, it's hard to emphasize the power that it has in our lives. I read a very, very interesting autobiography on one occasion The Right Thing by Scott Waddell. He was the commander of the USS Greenville uh, nuclear submarine, which in 2001 um, was doing an emergency drill whereby the ballast tanks would be emptied of water, filled with air, and the submarine subsequently would just charge to the surface like a bullet. And as it would breach the surface, it was kind of an emergency drill. Of course, the... It doesn't launch, but it, but it has that appearance of it, if you've ever, ever seen from a surface level the submarine do that. It was a pretty standard day. They had some, they had some folk on board, some um, visitors on board that day, and they were demonstrating to the visitors, a number of whom who had funded the naval program, what this particular submarine was, was capable of. And, and as Scott... Um, reported for duty that day and walked onto, onto, his, onto his submarine. He did all of the usual checks and he was told that the, the sonar display unit wasn't working. And it was kind of a backup system. He didn't need it to be able to, you know, the submarine would, would function okay without the sonar display unit. It could do everything. They could even do the drill that they needed to do that day. But it was a bit of a pity. And he 
he said, any chance of getting it fixed? And they said, not, not, not immediately, no. We'd have, to, we'd have to put everything off for the day. So they went out to sea and they, they performed this, this drill anyway. But deep under the water, what they have to do is to, to try and understand beneath the surface what is actually happening on the surface. Before they, before they uh, perform this particular drill, they've got to be sure that, it's, that everything is clear on the surface and that they, they can actually breach the surface in the way that they had planned to do it. All of the other systems said that everything was okay. The sonars were picking up something, but the backup unit, the display unit, the sonar display unit, it didn't show. It wasn't, sorry, it wasn't available, it wasn't working, so it didn't show that there was one vessel in the vicinity, a Japanese fishing vessel. And as a result, they checked all of the other units, they felt that it was okay, they sensed underneath the surface that they knew what was above the surface, they performed the drill and then a tragedy struck as they hit the Japanese boat and many, many died in that situation. Um, I think life is a little bit like that. So much of it is, is lived from a perspective where we just cannot see what is above the surface of our reality. We can't see all that is going on. We don't have the clear perspective that, that you need from a life lived beneath the surface of God's perspective. We have to have that communion with God. We need that sonar that is picking up everything that God would, would have us pick up. We need to be in communion with him, direct contact with him, so that his perspective can be our perspective, so that we can understand the temptations that are coming our way. We can understand the tests and the trials that we're going through, so that we can understand the times and that we know what to do. For that to be a reality, for us to know the Father's perspective, that sonar has to be working. We need to be receiving clear communication from our Heavenly Father. And, and Jesus knew that. And so he had to pray. And what is it that he prays? What is, what is the prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane that, that so helps him? We only have a very, very brief summary of it, but there's so much in it. Look at verse 36. Everything is possible. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Firstly, everything is possible for you. Jesus expresses his absolute faith and trust in the Father. There is a crisis here, but it is not a crisis of faith. Father, Abba, Daddy, everything is possible for you. Jesus does not waver one iota from his conviction that the Father is completely in control. Of all things. He expresses his faith in the Father. 
He's honest. There is an honesty here. Take this cup from me. This was not a cup that Jesus wanted to drink. The passion of the Christ was not to die. The passion of the Christ was to do the Father's will. In all honesty, if there was another way, if the cup could be taken from him, he was more than open to that. This was not something that that he wanted to endure. There is a beautiful honesty here. There is an expression of faith in the Father. Everything's possible for you. There's honesty. Take the cup from me. But then there is submission to the will of the Father. Yet, not what I want, not what I will, but what you will. But what you will. In John chapter 14, verse 30 and 31, we have this amazing little insight into what perhaps was going through Jesus' mind here. Again, in the context of this intimate teaching time with the disciples before his arrest, Jesus says, I will not say much more to you, for the prince of this world is coming. He has no hold over me, but he comes. Here's the reason. Here's the purpose. Here's the reason behind all that Jesus is doing at the minute. He comes so that the world may learn that I love the Father and do exactly what my Father has commanded me. There is a purpose in what is about to happen. There is a purpose in the tragedy that is about to unfold. There is a purpose in the path that the Father has asked the Son to walk. There is a purpose in the pain. There is a purpose in the suffering. There is a purpose in this wicked thing that is about to take place. The prince of this world is coming. And it's going to look like he has his way, but don't worry, he has no hold over me. The prince of this world is coming, and it must be this way, so that the world may learn, so that we might see modelled for us, I love the Father and do exactly what my Father has commanded me. Isn't that beautiful? There's our model, there's our example. I love my Father. And I do exactly what it is that he asks. Jesus here is saying, take this cup, honestly. I I don't want to do this. Take this cup from me. But not what I want, what you want. Because I love you. And I will do, Father, whatever it is that you ask of me. Jesus here demonstrates what it is to have a a will that is yielded to God's will. His will will not get in the way. His will will not cause any distraction. His will will not interfere with the will of the Father and his understanding of that. The sonar, the radar, so that he can be in communion with God and understand exactly what it is that God wants, is not in any way hindered or disrupted. He hears clearly what it is that the Father wants of him. 
Hebrews 12 too, Jesus described it this way. This is language almost too ecstatic, surely, for such a moment as this. But for the joy set before him, he endured the cross and scorned its shame. For the joy set before him, he loved the Father and was committed to doing the Father's will. A yielded will meant there was no interference, but his will, the flesh, if you like, had to be broken to the Father's will. Uh, it's, to use some benign examples, take something as simple as, as blue tack. It's useless in the form in which you buy it off the shelf. You open up the packaging, it's just like soft putty. Nothing will stick to it, and it will stick to nothing until it's worked, until it's stretched, until it's kneaded, until it's, until it's broken and twisted and pulled and, and pushed and melded into something that suddenly becomes useful. I don't know about you, the mystery of a glow stick. Do you remember the first time you ever held a glow stick? Everybody else is running around with one that's, you know, one that's working and you're looking at this thing and you're trying to think, how do you, where's the switch? Where's the button? How do, you, how, do you, how do you make this thing work? I was like, well, mine's not working like everybody else's is working. Until somebody came along and very, very graciously said, you've got to break it. No, 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 I don't want it. I want it to work. No, no, you've got to break it so it will work. You actually have to break the thing so that it would glow and be of some use. And God has to break you and I so that we will glow with his glory, so that we will be of some use to him. There is a purpose to pain. Our will must be broken and yielded to the fathers. A.W. Tozer said it's doubtful that God can use anyone greatly till he has broken them deeply. We're like glow sticks, people. Our will must be surrendered and broken to God's or we can be of no use to his service. This is that moment where we accept, yes, <laughs> we accept Jesus as Saviour, but yes, we submit also to him as Lord, Saviour and Lord. This is the full gamut of following, following Jesus. But going back to failure, going back to those moments when we don't, what do we say when Jesus comes back to us a second time, when he comes back to us a third time? And honestly, we are a little bit just like the disciples. In verse 40, verse 40 they did not know what to say. We have willed to do the right thing. We have tried again and again and again and... I don't know whether we just don't get the lesson the first time or whether it's some sort of habitual sin or whatever it might be, but for some reason, it feels like Jesus is coming back to us again and again and again, and we still haven't got it. And now we are just dumbfounded. We are lost for words. We don't know what to say. What do I say about my failure, Lord? There aren't words, there aren't excuses. There's just ah, brokenness. I, I, I don't know what to say. And here is where we remember that Jesus has said all that needs to be said. Back up in verse 29, he says, You will fall away, as it is written. I will strike the shepherd, the sheep will be scattered. But here, here it is. 
Verse 28, rather. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Just remember that. When you're stuck in your failure, when you're stuck in a rut, when you just don't know what to say, you, oh God, I feel like I've disappointed you just one too many times. Is it possible? Is there one too many? Am I there yet? I don't know what to say. And Jesus has said it all. I'll go ahead of you. I will go ahead of you. In other words, I will make a way. Quite literally, I will lead forward. I will lead the way. I will go on ahead. You don't know where to, where to go from this moment. You feel stuck. You feel lost. It's all right. I will, I will go on ahead of you and I will call you to me. I'll show you the way. I will lead you out of this. I will lead you forward. Come to me. Do you remember of all of Jesus' resurrection appearances, which one it was? Well, there were a couple in Galilee. But do you remember one of the most detailed and intimate and beautiful encounters with the risen Christ that took place in Galilee? It was breakfast on the beach. That one. Many of the disciples were Galileans. They had naturally returned home. And Jesus met them where they were at. And then called them to him. He'd gone on ahead of them just as he had promised. Uh, I don't know about you, but I've often pondered Peter's failure. Often thought, thought about it. And this monumental occasion when Jesus is on the beach and and Peter's, Peter's out fishing. They, it's a very, very intimate call. When Jesus calls out to them, it's Peter, it's, it's like saying, hey, boys, my boys. It's an intimate call. Hey, boys, how goes the fishing? And can you imagine their attention? There would have been people on the beach at that time, but this particular this particular person with a bit of a fire going on the beach is calling out to them and and he stands out amongst all of the others. And we don't know in the boat who was the most curious first. Who was it? Who was, could it be? Could it be? But it was reminiscent of the call of the disciples to Jesus right at the very beginning. After teaching the crowds on the beach, they'd pushed out. Luke records that. Jesus hopped into Peter, Simon Peter's boat. They'd pushed out from shore. And then after the teaching, teaching time, it's time to teach Peter. And Jesus says, drop the net. And Peter says, oh, we've been out all night. It's not a good one. It's, trust me, I'm a seasoned fish. I know that. You, you, all right, because you say so. I'll do it. Drops the net. They have a, this amazing catch. And so when Jesus says, hey, drop the net on the right side of the boat, on this occasion, did Peter's mind suddenly just run back to, to his actual call when Jesus was in the boat with him? Did his mind just run back to that moment and think, here we go again? This is kind of deja vu. And so they, net, they let the net 
drop on the right side, they catch this, this amazing net full of fish and, and, and then somebody exclaims, it's, it's him, isn't it? It's Jesus, it's the master. And as Peter decides, I know I'm not quite right with Jesus, <laughs> but I have got to go to him. And he's swimming across the water there. I just wonder, was there just a little irony there? I used to walk on this stuff. <laughs> and here I am swimming in it. He arrives around the same time as the disciples are pulling up the boat. And Jesus calls them up to the fire. Peter probably would have been pretty ecstatic about standing around that fire, dripping wet wanting to warm himself and there is breakfast already on it and, and Jesus offers it to him. And, and Peter honestly could have been, ah, something's not right, Lord. You know, my, my failure, yeah, you know, I don't know. I don't know what to do. Who of us knows what to do when we've failed God? But Peter opens up his hands and he receives the gifts that Jesus had for him in that moment, bread and fish. He breaks the bread for them and he, and he hands Peter the fish, reminiscent of so many meals, fellowship meals that they had shared together. And he receives the gifts from Jesus and he takes them into his hands in that moment. He wants restored fellowship so much. And during a walk on the beach with Jesus, just that very thing happens. Jesus calls us to him when we're just lost for words, when we just don't even know what to do. Jesus goes ahead of us. He provides a way. He makes a way. He shows the way. And then he calls us to him. He doesn't join us and wallow in our weaknesses and our failures. He doesn't sit around with us picking at our sores and our scars. He goes on and he makes a way and he shows us the way and he says, come to me. And he calls us out of our failure. He calls us out of our despair, out of our hopelessness, out of our disappointment. He calls us out of the place that has us trapped, which we have become so comfortable with, and he calls us to himself. His resurrection appearance is a reminder that we too can be resurrected. We might feel dead. We might feel lost. We might feel beaten. We might feel absolutely buried with a particular situation. But even as the Father raised the Son to life, so the promise is He will raise you and He will raise me. He will raise us up again. He will. He does that. He's the life giver. He can give life to absolutely anything. Nothing is so dead that he cannot breathe life into it. That's the promise of God for you and I today and for us as a church. Philippians 2.13 Mentioned this verse often, obviously, because it's caught my attention. 
It was in a devotional by Andrew Murray that I think I first truly understood it. But it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. To will and to act. When, <laughs> when we don't act the way that God wants us to act, that's one thing. What about when we can't will it? Because the flesh is weak. It is God who is working in you and I to will and to act according to his good purpose. Can he do it? Can he do it? Can he do it for you? Can he do it for me? Can he do it for us? Like seriously? So I share with you also Ephesians 1.20. There is incredible power available Available to us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty power that God exerted to raise Jesus Christ from the dead. That power is available to you and I. You've heard me say that before. I'm saying it again this morning. And yes, every time I say it, I get kind of excited because there's the gospel of grace for you and I. It doesn't matter how dead you feel. It doesn't matter how how far you've strayed, how lost you are. Sinner, come home. There is power for you. Grace, amazing grace, abundant grace, extraordinary power. How much power do you think you need? Well, seriously, the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, that's available to you and I. So I ask you, Can you possibly foul up? Can you possibly stray further than the power of God to redeem you? I say no. What do you say? That same power is available to you and to I. There's the gospel of grace. It's a beautiful thing. And I'm going to invite you now as we share communion together, to celebrate that power, to to empty your hands of your failures today and to pick up in one hand the bread and in the other hand the cup, two symbols of the grace of God, and you can't hold those symbols and your failures at the same time. Get it? You get it. You get it, don't you? I you get it. You can't. And so I, 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 I want for all of us to experience afresh this gospel of grace, the power of God, that as you, as you pick up those two symbols, remember, you can only do so with empty hands. So please do make sure that you have laid your failures down and you have let go of them. Because it is only with empty hands that you can pick up the symbols of grace that have you absolutely covered and that promise you the life you've always wanted. Let's pray. Jesus, I want to thank you this morning for the reminder that failure is not final. 
You go ahead of us, you provide a way, you show us the way, and you call us to us, and you are calling, calling us this morning to come to you, to lay down our failures, to pick up symbols of grace that remind us that you've got us covered, that you are calling out the very best version of us, even when we have given up hope. My prayer over all of us today, this Father's Day 2019, for all parents, for all those who are not parents, for all, for all those who are children of God, who trust in their Heavenly Father, my prayer is that that version of us which you see so clearly the very best version of us. You see it, you see it. That we would accept it this day. That we too would see it and we would, as we lay down our failures and pick up symbols of grace that have us absolutely covered. That likewise we would be saying I want the very best version of me. Jesus, I want the very best version of me. I confess where I have failed you. And if we confess our sins, we hold to your character that you are faithful and just that you forgive us our sin and that you cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We celebrate today that we have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer us who lives, but it's Jesus Christ who lives within us. The life that we live in the body, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. We celebrate this morning hope and release and freedom. We celebrate power, incredible power, to bring us back from the dead. We gladly receive all that you have for us and we celebrate this together as a body. Thank you, Jesus. I'm going to invite you this morning to... As the band, the band lead us um, to come up and to take the bread, to take the cup, return to your seat. You can linger in the moment. Enjoy the grace that is yours through Christ Jesus. Make sure you take those symbols with symbols of grace with empty hands, though. Lay down those failures. Keep the cup. We're going to drink together in just a just a short time. Celebrate the unity we have through Christ Jesus.